Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak of. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this passage describes Jesus in Jerusalem again. It's a little difficult sometimes to grasp the sequence of events when you read about Jesus's life with the apostles, the various disciples after the resurrection. Last week we were in Galilee fishing. The week before we were in Jerusalem. Now we're back in Jerusalem. There are a couple of ways you can interpret that. It could mean that the events all happened in Jerusalem sequentially and then all the events in Galilee happened sequentially. And there's another way you could look at it, and that is, is that there's been time for them to go from Jerusalem to Galilee and back again to Jerusalem. It really doesn't matter that much in today's reading, but it's interesting. And it gives us pause to read commentaries and things which some suggest Jesus may have been in resurrected life for as much as two years. Most people think that it was almost certainly just the 40 or so days between Passover and Pentecost. And the Lord himself sort of hints at that in this case because he says, in a few days, you're going to receive the gift the Father promised. So whatever the case, it's interesting. And Theophilus, well, there are a lot of explanations in the commentaries about that too. The one I like best says that this is a word that's sort of a generic word for a lover of God. It's just a word that means lover of God. And so... In this case, the author is just giving us the account because we love God and this is the idea. Most scholars are convinced that Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles and that they're sort of a two volume set. One describes the age of Jesus, in other words, the era of Jesus's physical presence among us. And the other describes the church age, which is what we want to talk about today. And by that, we mean the era of the church. And in particular, 
the purpose of the church during this era we call the church age. Now, I am inclined to think that the conversation probably occurred on a return trip to Jerusalem simply because it's a much more casual conversation this time. Remember that the other conversations we've shared, uh, they're very intense and very intimate, aren't they? I mean, you have the conversation between Jesus and Thomas and the, the whole, you know, my Lord and my God thing. And then you have Peter and his, his reinstatement and so forth in the last reading that we did last week. And, and they're all so intense and, and deeply personal. This one's so much more casual. They're eating lunch together and they're talking over lunch. And they say, so Lord, are you going to restore things now? Is this what comes next? And he says, nah, fellas, that's, that's for the father to decide. I don't, I don't have an answer for you on that one. And it doesn't really matter. But what I do see coming next is your receiving of the Holy Spirit and then you being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. And, and it seems very casual, but highly consequential. I mean, he's saying casually, you're going to do these things. You won't be able to help it. You won't be able to resist. And what's really interesting is the literary style of this particular author even tells us in this simple statement Jesus makes that that's what you're about to read in the Acts of the Apostles. So his opening paragraph says, here's what Jesus did, here's what Jesus said, and here's what we did about it. And then it proceeds to explain throughout the Acts of the Apostles what Jesus' Jesus's followers did. And in fact, it describes their taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Which, by the way, is an outward spiral if you think about it, because their starting point is Jerusalem, then Judea is the region they're in, and then... Samaria is an extended region beyond Judea and then the ends of the earth. Well, that's everywhere. And the book of Acts describes how they did that. The letters of the various churches describe the results of their carrying the message to the various places. And then in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives a report card on those churches that have been established and in effect, giving a report card on all churches as they tend to be. And so we have from this point forward in our Bible, everything we need to know about how to be exactly what Jesus expects us to be, which are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. Now, the first ingredient, the main ingredient is himself. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to leave, but you will receive the Spirit from on high. And as you've heard me describe this many times over the months now, I believe that what we're seeing is a spiritual transformation that would look a little bit like a transfusion. You know, it's like you're taking bad blood out and replacing it with good blood. Now, you can't see this. It's not like... You could put a blood sample of a Christian under a microscope and see some perceivable difference. And yet, what seems to happen when we receive the Holy Spirit and are born again is that our old spiritual nature, the small s spiritual nature of our being, is transfused and transformed into a capital S 
sort of transformation. In other words, we go from self-centered and self-oriented to spirit-guided and God-oriented. And this does not always happen dramatically in an instant. Many times it takes time and it happens over a time or a period. But this is the nature of the new birth in Christ that we're talking about. And this is what he was describing when he told them that in a few days they would receive power from on high. They would be made new. They would be born again. Their flesh would look the same, but their spirits would have been reborn. And this, in effect, is to extend Christ to people and therefore making us the body of Christ. So Jesus is no longer physically walking among them, but now he is physically present in them. So that the body of Christ is bigger than the sum of one man's parts. It's this body that we're part of to this day. The spirit of this age is the Holy Spirit, and the church age is an age that has started at the time of this passage is writing or reading, and this is still continuing now because the age of the church doesn't end until Christ returns. So once again, the author has explained it to us in a simple couple of sentences. Jesus left, told us we would be his body until he returns, and the angel said he'll come back the same way he left. And that's what we're still watching for today. Now, as the body of Christ, we bear witness to Christ. Now, witness is an interesting word because we think we know what it means, and it would be correct to, say, uh, to assume that a witness is somebody who gives testimony, who says, I saw this, I heard that, I know this, I know that. If you were asked to testify in court, you would give a witness. You would say, this is what I know. This is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. And this is certainly part of what Jesus expects us to do. But a word study will show you that in the original language of the author, there's a somewhat more, greater depth of use of this word. And it stems from a word called martyr or martyr. You may have heard of that word. You may have thought of it as something that you're glad other people are, but you're glad you're not. <laughs> A martyr is someone who suffers for the sake of another. A lot of times a martyr is death, is, is, is dead or has died as a result of their suffering. This would be a somewhat accurate but also incomplete explanation. A better way to put it would be that the witness who is a martyr is one who bears the marks that tell the story. Now, if you know anything about carpentry, you know that in a construction project, especially let's say if someone's building a home, the lead carpenter has certain standards of measurement that he expects everyone to use, or she. And there will be a lot of times what they call a witness pole or a story pole, where a carpenter has taken a certain piece of wood, maybe a two by four, and marked on it with a pen or a pencil certain standard measurements that every door opening, every window opening will be made by. And therefore, all the other carpenters and laborers have to do is take that story pole or that witness pole and put it in the right place and it bears the marks that tell where things should be and how they should be. 
Another example would be those marks on the bridge pier down at the Ohio River. When you go down to the bridge or to the river's edge by a bridge, you see those marks on the bridge that tell you how high the water has or how high it can be. And by those marks, it bears witness to the depth and gauge of the water and how much room there is for the boats to pass under the bridge and that sort of thing. So these are witness marks. And what Jesus wants us to do then is to be those who bear the marks or the signs of him. So implicit in that is new birth in the Holy Spirit, meaning that our inner nature has been transformed or is being transformed. And on the outside, it means that we do and say things differently. And sometimes it literally means bearing the scars or enduring suffering for his name's sake. It doesn't necessarily mean death. It doesn't necessarily mean torture. But for many of us in this comfortable country we live in, it probably will bring discomfort. If we really bear witness to Jesus, there will be suffering. There will be setbacks. There will be difficulties. You will bear the signs, even if it means that you're maybe not as prosperous as your neighbor, or perhaps you don't have as good a car as your neighbor, or because you've... Uh, given more money to the church than your neighbor and that has caused you to spend less on yourself and i don't know you can you can name a hundred things but the idea is that the marks are there and the suffering is there there are consequences for bearing this message and in the case of the apostles he was talking to almost all of them suffered terribly even torturous deaths in order to do what Jesus told them. But he didn't say, you must be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond to the ends of the earth. He did not say, I expect it, you must, you have to. He just said it as a matter of fact. You'll be born again and then you'll do that. And the reality is, is that once you've received Christ and you've accepted the gift of new birth and the Holy Spirit, you just do things differently. You just do things differently. And this is the case. Now, when he says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world, a lot's been said about those places and why he named them. I think the best interpretation for modern Christians is this. Jerusalem is a familiar place, and it's highly localized. And Judea is similar in that it's a broader scope but it's still familiar people still speak the same languages things are still fairly familiar things like tastes and cultures and so forth that seems to be where it's different then there's samaria in samaria they are kin in a distant way and therefore it is known but awkward. It is a place they don't particularly care to go because of natural things to be afraid of and a whole lot of perceived fears. And then there are the ends of the earth which offers all sorts of potential for good and evil to happen to the witness. 
So in this casual and highly consequential conversation, Jesus is saying what the angels said. Okay, guys, the show's over. Get to work. They were standing there staring up into the sky, wondering about what they'd just seen, probably terrified because he left them again. They had just gotten comfortable with him being back, and now he leaves, this time stolen away. In the translations of the scripture from long ago, that would have been the word to describe his sudden departure, steal away. It's the same word that's used to describe the rapture of the church, to steal away. They're just there one minute and gone. And then in an instant, they find themselves alone without their master and with a mission that sounds impossible and terrifying. And they know they're going to get the Holy Spirit, but right now it doesn't feel that great. And then as if that wasn't enough, the angels say, fellas, show's over, get to work. But the work is simple. The first instruction was wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He called for spirit-empowered action, not the other way around, not human-driven action. And this is an important concept because it's amazing how many people in churches today and in religious leadership today are busy doing all sorts of things for God and about God, but they have nothing to do with the love of God. They have nothing to do with the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot being done in Jesus' name that Jesus would not be welcome to join in for fear he might change the plan. Rather, we make plans in Jesus' name and then wait for him to endorse our plans. And if he doesn't, then we find the next best person or organization to endorse our plans. And this is not the way it's supposed to be. We have to have faith in the promise of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, none of it matters. I mentioned in the first service that the most important thing that you need to know about me is, is that I don't take myself that seriously. The reason we'd cut up and joke up here sometimes is because it's not about us. We're living in the joy of what we are here for, to worship God because we just can't help it. We're living in the joy the Holy Spirit gives so that there's nothing we can decide to do that the Holy Spirit can't make better if it was the Spirit's plan in the first place. So this is why we say we look for where God is at work and then join God in it, understanding that if God is at work, then God is endorsing the plan, and we should just help by joining with God in whatever God is doing. It's a whole different concept, but it beats the heck out of making our own plans and then hoping that the Spirit shows up to make it work. And so we laugh. We make fun of ourselves. We have fun being the body of Christ instead of being all serious about being church. And if you want to know why most churches get sick, and sometimes even die from their sickness, they usually get too serious about themselves. It usually becomes a matter of trying to one-up the church down the road or to honor God with excellence. Boy, 
I'm looking at Perlene out there. She sees me at work during the weekdays. If honoring God with excellence is how we do it, then we've got big problems, don't we, Perlene? Because the lead pastor doesn't do that very well. I generally make a mess of things and somehow God is glorified because of that. As a matter of fact, it seems to be God's pattern in the Bible. I'm digressing a little here, but for a purpose. When you look at what God says in the Old Testament, especially about his favorite people, it's usually their radically flawed nature that makes them ideal participants in his divine nature, because then there's no doubt about who it is that's really driving things. So if you want to know who's in charge around here, you got to see God at work. And the best way for you to see God at work is to make up your mind that I ain't that good. Because if you know I'm not that good, then you know it has to be God who's in charge. I just happen to be a particularly willing servant. And that's just as it should be. How do we bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world? Well... First, we've got to recognize where Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world are. Jerusalem is here. This space, right here. It's that family you're sitting with. It's that loved one that you're with right now. It's, it's you and where you work. It's you in the world that you are planted in. Jerusalem is the starting point. And this is the starting point. If people in your family aren't sure they know how you feel about Christ, that's your starting point. If people in your workplace aren't sure they know how you feel about Christ, that's your starting point. If people in this church aren't sure they know how you feel about Christ, then that's your starting point. And you shouldn't go much further than that without the Holy Spirit and a few people around you who share in your hardcore fundamental belief in the Lordship of Christ. Judea, well, that's that familiar place that's a little beyond your local environment. It's a little bit more regional, and that could mean all sorts of things. We want to be representatives of Christ, his witnesses in Ireland and Huntingburg and Jasper. We want to be his representatives in Du Bois County. We want to be his representatives in Southwest Indiana. We want to be part of the church universal, the body of Christ, as it moves toward God's will in this region. Samaria, well, those are the places that are somewhat familiar, but also a little frightening because of the unknowns. You know, for example, I just came to serve you after six years in northern Indiana. You know, they eat pie up there. Now, down here, we eat pie. Those people are the same, but they're different. There are a lot of things about them that I really like, and they speak the same language, they love the same Jesus, but you know, they're just different up there. They're not, they're not like us down here in southwest Indiana. It really felt like quite the homecoming for me to come here to be your pastor because I get you and I think you get me. And it doesn't mean I didn't get them and they didn't get me, but it was a lot harder up there because there were just certain cultural things that were a little different. Pastors can tell you, and pastor's wives for that matter, that, that one of the quickest ways to figure out the culture of a church is the church supper, right? Everybody knows the requirement for being in church. 
First, you love the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and you're a born-again believer. Second thing is, is you got to know how to make at least one casserole, right? And you got to know how to do a proper funeral dinner, right? And do you know that wherever we go as pastor family, we learn really quickly what the norm is in the various funeral dinners and things. In one church, it's a big bucket full of chicken from JC. In another church, it's ham loaf. In another church, it's, it's sliced spiral ham or something like that with pineapple on it. And every church has got its sort of mainstay. And it says something about the culture of the community. It really does. And so it's like Samaria because, well, the Samaritans were distant relations to the Jews, but they were different. And there was an edginess to it, and there was a sense of separation. And so when he calls you to go into Samaria, he's asking you to put yourself a little bit at risk, to risk a little bit of discomfort. Because if you can do that, then you're ready to go to the ends of the earth where the potential is amazing and there is great danger. And those ends can be anywhere you feel led by Jesus to bear the mark of the master. And we do all this during the church age until Christ returns because the stated purpose that Jesus gave the apostles is still the same purpose. And if you want to know what that looks like, if you want to measure your progress as a Christian, read the Acts of the Apostles and look at how they did it. Read the letters that they wrote to the churches. And finally, read the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation to see how Jesus scored them or graded them on their effort thus far. And if you join my Bible study online, that, that uh, podcast that I'm doing, you will find that we're really analyzing those report cards right now and finding that they are written not just to those literal churches that existed in that day, but they're written to all churches and all believers for all time. We can evaluate how we are as witnesses if we'll stick to Scripture. Bible Study 101, Pastor Dan's number one rule, let the Bible teach you about the Bible. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Jesus is coming again the same way that he left, with a bang. He's coming this time not as a gentle, sweet little baby in the middle of the night. He's coming with the flash as bright as lightning that the whole world can't miss. He's coming in a way that cannot be overlooked by anyone. He will be seen. Everyone will know what's going on. There will be a trumpet blast of the last jubilee, and we will be called to him because we know the sound of his voice, because we recognize the signs of his coming, because we have his marks on us. And each day that passes brings us that much closer to that day of the Lord. And too many people in the church just stand there staring into the sky, watching for his return. The last thing I want to say to you about this is that when I do this Bible study with Bethany about Revelation, I always make sure to say at some point, we're not reading this book so that we can sensationalize it and look for ways to interpret it into the events that we see in us and in around us in this world. There's enough people on YouTube and stuff doing that. I don't want to do that. What I do see is a beautiful book, 
and revelation that describes what is to come and why. And it brings to a conclusion everything that God has done throughout history with humanity. And it's a beautiful book that tells us how to really be Christians in the last days. And so if you want to know what your witness should look like right now, study with us the Word of God. And then be busy doing the work of God instead of looking around at the sky waiting for an angel to say, what are you looking at? Get to work! Our framework for mission here at Shiloh is really based on Jesus' expectation. We're going to be doing the same thing here as long as I'm your pastor. We're going to be taking care of things right here in this house, right here in this family, right here in this community, right here in this region. We're going to reach out to places that are a little uncomfortable for us, and then we're going to keep going to the ends of the earth. And all for the glory of God, and all because that's what God is doing, and he expects us to join him in it. We'll be fine because the Holy Spirit will be in charge. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Where we are absent of the Holy Spirit, invite, we invite that now. We invite your Holy Spirit to be present, to guide us. We know that in our setting, it's okay if it happens quietly and subtly, just so it happens. Drive Shiloh, drive our homes and our families, Toward your perfect will, we pray. Amen.